Today, I'm talking with Abby McKay. She's the somewhat newly appointed Southern Oregon Brit Festival CEO. The Brit is one of Southern Oregon's crown jewels and such a unique and special venue. Through this conversation, we will discuss the history as well as the future plans for the Brit. Abby has a lot of exciting plans in store for this organization, and I can't wait to see the improvements she makes in the coming years. It was a privilege to get to talk to her, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. So, can you give me uh, just a, a rundown of the history of the Brit um, as you know it and um, what your role is in the day-to-day process of that? Absolutely. So, Brit Music and Arts Festival was started in about 1962 when conductor John Trudeau came down to Jacksonville. And at that point, Jacksonville was kind of, it, it wasn't doing super well. The railroad had moved out quite a while earlier, um, and Jacksonville was really floundering as a community. And right around that same time, Jacksonville got that first grant that turned it into a historic landmark and cool. started to help fix up the shops. And John Trudeau simultaneously was looking for a place to start an orchestra festival in the summer. So he ended up on the on the hill, on Peter Britt's Upper Garden Hill, and found out that, that the acoustics there are really, really wonderful, and said, you know what, I'd really like to start a couple-week orchestra festival here. And the first few years really were like everybody was a volunteer. They made lights out of coffee cans, and cool. they strung them up, and the stage was like little platforms that people were building, and it was entirely community volunteer run. And over the years, it's just grown and grown and grown into really one of the biggest cultural gemstones, I think, of Southern Oregon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is really an underserved area for arts organizations. We, of course, have the very wonderful Oregon Shakespeare Festival yep. and so many other wonderful small organizations. But unlike an area like Bend or Portland or Eugene or even Salem, we don't have the kind of cultural resources that are right. being invested. So it's it's a pretty special little organization. Oh, it's absolutely a gem. And uh, my wife and I absolutely love it. We go every year that we've been here. And um, yeah, we're, we're just so thankful that that exists because it, it really is one of the main things that makes this area so special. It really is. Yeah. And, and my role there is president and CEO. I started about a year and a half ago, so I have now gone through my second season, which so was cool. wonderful. Congrats. Um, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a wild ride, but what, a, what an incredible organization and such a special community that we get to serve yeah, absolutely. here in Southern Oregon. So what is uh, your background and, and how did you end up in this role? I have spent my whole life in the arts. Um, I was a professional flutist. I went to school for flute performance. I just paid off my degrees like two years ago. Congratulations. It's a journey. Not a small feat. Not a small feat. Yeah. But when I was doing postgraduate work for flute performance, I I did my master's at Rice University and then my postgrad at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. And there were just a couple moments in those last couple of years where it was pretty clear that I was... A little too bossy to be sitting in an orchestra. And also, I have a very, um, I'm bored easily. I'm very easily bored. And I love making things. And unfortunately, when you're in that orchestral seat, often your job is is to be more of a technician than a creative. Um, 
And for me, that was just not a fit. That was not a fit because I am just sort of all over the map. I want to be getting my hands in a lot of stuff. Yeah. So from there, I started, I was in San Francisco and I started working in arts administration and um, eventually have made my way here. I've been I've been doing arts admin for almost 20 years now, which That's is amazing. kind of surreal, but yeah. there we are. Crazy, yeah, it's crazy how time flies, but um, that's so cool. So what do you mean by, um, by um, it's, it's technical and you have, to, you have to be a technician? So when you're sitting in an orchestra, you are one of, let's say, 100 instrumentalists on the stage. Yeah, sure. And the conductor is really the person who's doing the interpreting. So the conductor picks the music and is really the one who's like, we are speaking with one voice. Right. And this is that voice. And and kind of unifying everyone together. Exactly. Okay. And so they're really the person who is like, who is that creative spirit behind it. Interesting. And as an instrumentalist, especially especially if you are a string player, you're really playing with like 30 other string players on your same instrument. Right. As winds, you do have a little bit more creativity and it depends on the conductor whether they're going to give you like a little bit of space for that. Oh, so that's or interesting. Not. So does the conductor kind of um, can control to some degree, like who gets the, the spotlight and that sort of thing? You know, that's one way of saying it. I think I think what's probably a little more accurate is to say like, like to equate it to visual art. If you were working on a collaborative project, yeah. Sometimes some conductors are like the artist who makes every decision and like you're a muralist sure. and you say you've got everything laid out and you're, you're like this color goes here, this color goes there, this color goes here and there's no real room for interpretation. Right. You're just having helpers who fill in those colors in those prescribed areas. Right. There are other conductors who are like here's the shape of the mural. This is a flower you get to decide what color and shape that flower is. Okay, I see. And so I think that's that's really the key difference. And there's a lot of wonderful gratification to getting to choose right. the shape and size and color of the flower, right. um, especially for, for these highly trained orchestral musicians who've spent their whole lives right. becoming artists. Yeah, absolutely. So. That makes sense. It's it's like, where, do you, where does the, um, what style does the conductor give you the leeway? essentially exactly it's just different leadership styles you know it's it's like it's like having a micromanager boss or having a boss who trusts you to do what you need to do or you know on the far end having a boss who's like kind of clueless and doesn't doesn't really have an opinion yes. and, this, and then you end up with a mess right yes, so 100%. it's it's an it's a really fine balance i think and it's just different for different conductors right that makes sense so um actually that that's a kind of a fun segue because um, I'm a huge fan of classical music and especially at the Brit. I think great, it's really fun. Great. Um, so is that a classical group that, or the orchestra, are they local to here? Where are they from? It's a great question. Our orchestra is about 80 people yeah. and they come from all over the country. So some are local, cool. um, but people come from some of the best orchestras in this country to come here and play at Brit. They're only here for three weeks, yeah. and so it's uh, it's a really special thing. And many of them have been coming back for decades, and so this cool. is sort of their summer family. It's like it's it's kind of probably uh, it's probably a great thing to be able to play at such a cool outdoor venue if you're uh, um, 
someone part of an orchestra. Absolutely. And there's something really special about about Brit, even compared to so many of the other venues that are outdoors. Totally agree. Brit, Brit has something really special about it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, uh, when was the um, Brit Festival uh, building constructed? Do you know? I believe that was 1978. Okay. Um, I am lucky to have in my office the original architectural drawing so with, cool. in watercolor and the style that every, you know, they've, they've got people milling about and it's like people wearing bell bottoms and vests and stuff. It's great. Um, but the building, I believe, was designed in 76 and completed in 78. Um, and that is the original building. Before that, it was really just a homegrown. Like. Yep. Like just the land, essentially. Yeah. 15 years of like throwing together a platform stage That's and stringing great. some lights. Yeah. So I love it's really that. special. I mean, the progression is awesome. It is. Yeah. yeah. And now, yeah. now there's like vendors and food and yeah, it's great. Exactly. And we're really thinking about building the culture out there. So, you know, we... Brit does not own the venue. The county owns the venue, but we... I did not know that. uh, Yeah, we rent and operate and maintain the venue 365 days a year. Oh, that's so cool. So um, right now, despite renting it 12 months a year, we're only activating it for the community for like three and a half months a year. And we're thinking a lot about how do we, within the confines of our conditional use permits, so we're not overstepping our boundaries with the neighbors, how do we make sure that we are activating that space and turning it into a community gathering place all year long? Yeah, that's such a cool idea. So what what are some ideas that have come to mind at this point uh, around that? We're going to be hosting uh, the Southern Oregon Chinese Association's Lunar New Year party this year in February. I think that's February 10th. Um, And that is one of the first things that we're going to be taking on. We're also looking at some other kind of fun ideas like, you know, not amplified sound, but like I would love for us to do a safe trick-or-treat event out there. Yeah, would that would be, be really so cool. so much fun. That's a great I would idea. love for us to do like a German-style holiday market out yeah. there, um, looking at, you know, what else can we do that, that doesn't yeah. create noise issues and mess issues for the neighborhood? Yeah, no, I think that's a great idea because it's, yeah. it's such a great space. It and, is. And it just, yeah, it brings people together. I love that. That's it is. It's so special. And, and really, it is intended to be community space. You know, Peter Britt, do you know who Peter Britt was? I, it's a, it's on my question list. I, I saw it on your question <laughs> list. Let's talk about Peter yeah, Britt. Please. So I am not a native Oregonian. Yes. And so I did not learn this in the third grade. So yeah. anybody who's listening who did can correct me about anything I, I'm getting wrong. I, if if I speak for my fellow uh, local Southern Oregonians, uh, we don't know enough about our own history, <laughs> sadly. I mean, there are so many great stories. Peter Britt is a great story. So Peter Britt was a Swiss visual artist and photographer. Cool. And he came out here um, on on the wagon train um he brought his photography equipment and then he spent years out here just kind of he he had property in jacksonville um he spent years trying to figure out what he was doing so he was a mule packer for a while he planted the first pears and the first grapes in oregon no way so that's amazing we have the whole we have Peter Britt to thank for the whole of Oregon's wine industry yeah. at this point. He also opened one of the first, I think, wineries or cideries right there on his property. So um, he took the photos of Crater Lake that were sent to Congress uh, that made it a national park. Whoa. He was a fascinating, fascinating guy. So he did so much to really define the character of this area. And as an immigrant, he really shaped how we see Jacksonville 
um, and and the community that is still there. So Britt is actually on his property. Um, I think his daughter was still alive when the festival started. No way. In the 60s. I might be wrong about that. But there are people in Jacksonville who remember, who come to Britt now, and remember seeing her when they were children and who grew up playing in the Blackberries on the on the hillside. So it's a really special landmark. And also the home of one of Southern Oregon's first black business owners is also there on the grounds no at Brit. So it's a really special, important place, I think, yeah. for for so much cultural history. No doubt. And that's uh, it's fascinating because, uh, I mean, um, Southern Oregon was uh, originally like a massive pear farming space. I mean, we still do some pear farming, but it's definitely not to the same level as it used to be. So the fact that he was the first one to plant pears here, that's crazy. Isn't that wild? That's really wild. You think about the industries that then, the the, the things that we still know that that really originate from this one person. Yeah. It's the pears, it's the wine industry, and Crater Lake as a national park. Yeah, Crater Lake, that's huge. That's amazing to think about. And, you know, of course, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that I am confident he had quite a bit of knowledge base that came to him from indigenous Americans. Sure. And, and that's really important to acknowledge that, that this wasn't the discoverer. Right, right. But, but certainly a fascinating person nonetheless. Yeah. No, that is so cool. And it's it's cool that his uh, legacy has obviously lived on, not just with Crater Lake and Pears and all that, but just, you know, the Brit Festival is, is huge. Exactly. And actually one thing that, that sort of brings to mind is it's just wild that, you know, in your lifetime you can uh, do sort of seemingly somewhat small insignificant things and they can have very lasting effects after your lifetime. And I'm sure he had no idea some of these things would become so big and so, you know, important later on. Absolutely. And, and you know, if you're ever looking for um, another fabulous interview, have you, do you know Chelsea Rose? No. Chelsea is the archaeologist uh, at SOU who's done all of the digs around Jacksonville. And she's actually currently digitizing all of the Peter Britt oh, that's archives so cool. from like, all over their property so she's and she's fascinating okay she's so interesting well, so no, that's a, definitely that check her out she's a great fabulous. idea and she's I, super cool i have i've been actually wanting i i i i'm glad you brought that up because i've uh told multiple people i'm like i really want to find someone who's kind of like a local historian because there's so much interesting history here but so many of us you know just don't really know where to look or you totally. know so that's really a great idea Definitely yeah i'll gonna, put you in touch if you're curious because she's please. she's so interesting and she really she has she has really um, kind of championed the preservation of some of these very important things in Jacksonville and really throughout the region. But but you know she walked me around Brit and showed me, oh this is where this this beautiful piece of history is still buried no underground, and she knows all of these amazing things. I and I love that because it it really does bring you know. Exactly. things to life when you know exactly. the history of them yeah i mean we're yeah, we're not that's, alone that's super cool in finding certain things amazing yeah. like th- these places have been important for you know millennia and there are so many stories that that we can't yeah. possibly all know so it's really special huh that's so cool i love that so actually where does the property uh extend to because uh, it, is it limited to where the the stage and you know the so hill that we see Brits, or is it bigger Peter than Brits that property i believe goes down from is that california street yeah. and oregon street right. so it's like the corner of california yeah. and oregon right. yeah. i believe 
all the way up yeah. to the fence at the Brit Gardens. Okay. So it's quite sizable. Yeah. And in Jacksonville, that's okay. called the, the yeah, lower Brit Gardens okay. and the upper Brit Gardens. And the upper Brit Gardens are the Brit Hill. And the lower gardens are um, managed by the city of Jacksonville right. and the Jacksonville, the fabulous Jacksonville right. boosters. Yeah. And that's also where the foundation of Peter Britt's home still exists. The house uh, burned down, I believe, okay. um, some years ago, but the foundation okay. of the house is still there and oh, you can so actually cool. still walk the footprint, which is really Oh, neat. that's so cool. Yeah, I, that's one of my favorite aspects of Jacksonville is just... Uh, everywhere you look is something from, you know, early 1900s totally. or you know, late 1800s. You know, a, a fun fact I learned so about cool. Jacksonville, and again, I might get this wrong, but yeah. somebody told me with great confidence that um, there was a movie, <laughs> there was a, a old Western that was made in Jacksonville in maybe this, the 80s. No way. And part of the agreement okay. with that movie was they didn't want power lines in the shot. And so the movie producers paid to bury all the power lines. And that is that's why cool. when you go through downtown Jacksonville, oh, that's cool. it looks beautiful and historic because the power lines are all underground. And that's actually, that's so nice because anytime you see like a historic town, Absolutely. Like, it, it ruins the Absolutely. illusion Absolutely. of the historic, you know, Absolutely. connotation. Yeah, that's so cool. That's actually, yeah, it's really Yeah, neat. I don't, I, I I don't know what the movie was. I could put you in somebody, in touch is. with somebody who would know. Yeah. But, yeah. but that's such a fascinating yeah. thing. Yeah, fun fact. I love that. Fun facts. <laughs> yeah, fun facts. <laughs> so good. Um, so uh, back to your role in the Brit, what what does that look I like on kind of a day-to-day -day basis? I do a lot of things, which is great as a person who's yes. easily bored. Yes. I get to yes. uh, I get to work a lot on the programming, which is just the bread and butter of everything. I love working with our community. I am the person who's out in the community doing meetings and, and serving on the Chamber of Commerce, in the city of Jacksonville. Um, and I think that's perhaps the most crucial thing. Those two, you know, people and programs, I think are the things that, um, that drive any nonprofit arts organization without those two things. What do you have, you yeah, know? Um, so those are, those are really yeah, kind of the two kind of top tier, uh, things that, that, I spend a lot of time on, sure. but then of course there's a ton of administrative work too. I'm working on the budget right now, which yeah. is always I love doing, but it, it is a fascinating and complicated animal. And and does that require, you know, are there times Absolutely. where you have to like fundraise yep. kind Absolutely. of last minute and yeah. stuff because there's just yeah. not enough well, money in the budget to Yeah, well, and we've got a really interesting financial makeup. So a huge percentage of our expenses is covered by ticket sales, but but not remotely all of it. Right. Right. So what people might not realize right. is that when you buy a ticket for a show at Brit, the vast majority of that ticket goes back to the artist, which makes sense. Yeah. Right. But which it does sense. mean it's that, that yeah. you know, right. we have to definitely bridge that gap in other ways. And so we do that through grant writing. We bring in tons of grants that, oh, that we cool. really work hard on. Oh, that's cool. Is that through it's the state or mostly, is that usually federal? Uh, individual foundations and things like that. We get very little money from the government. You know, the arts, the arts in the United States are the least funded of any country in the world, I believe. Which is not not surprising, That's but it shame. is a shame. I mean, it's it's sort of breathtaking. Yeah. And when you look yeah. at something, you know, the, the much maligned National Endowment for the Arts is such an incredibly tiny amount of money. And the arts, the arts nationwide are one of our highest GDP products. Um, but it's just, you know, yeah. 
it's just a weird value system that we have around the arts. And for whatever reason, there's, there's this sense of elitism that, that I think is incorrect, but there we go. Yeah. It's, it's never, uh, it's never always the most rational (laughs) way that we allocate tax money. So we are very fortunate though, to be funded by a number of individuals and foundations here who, who really understand the value of what we're bringing to the community. Um, Thank goodness. And and really want to make that yeah. happen. Um, I mean, I, I think that the Brit has a massive impact on the, um, I mean, on the just overall uh, lifestyle and value of, of our um, Rogue Valley area. And anyone that, you know, if it ever closed down or whatever, it would obviously be a massive yeah. hit to just... The, the well, and one thing people don't realize area, is so we're possibly the largest arts education organization in Southern Oregon as well. Yeah, so we uh, we produce really? admission free education events in the summertime. We do around ten admission free family concerts, which are fabulous. But throughout the year, we also do this amazing residency program, and we're in around seventy schools every year. We bring professional artists into schools um, throughout Jackson and Josephine counties, and we especially pay attention to these very, very rural schools that lack funding for arts sure. educators on their own. And and sure. so without that, yeah, you do have this kind of chasm yes. of stuff that's not being served. Yes, totally. So what what are those um, the concerts, kids concerts like? What, so what the do Brits, they do? the Brit uh, Kids concerts. Yeah. Uh, we bring in different artists and this past summer we had multiple uh grammy nominated and one grammy winning children's performers um really amazing performers people like the lucky band uh with lucky diaz um joe kai from portland um really fabulous performers nanny nikki from chicago and these are people who really do specialize in children's productions and performance and so those programs are generally um they're scattered around. Sometimes we do them at the uh, the Bandshell in Lithia Park. Cool. Sometimes we do them at the Pavilion. And we, this summer, debuted several in uh, Pear Blossom Park in downtown Medford. And man, that's they're just venue. fabulous. So cool. They're fabulous that, programs. That's a great venue. I love that. So um, is the goal of that um, just exposure or is it education? It's a combination. What, it's a great the, question. What's the goal? So some of our programs really are about developing the next generation of artists and um, arts enthusiasts. Sure. You know, without arts in the public schools in the way that they were, certainly when I was a kid, um, we're just seeing a different awareness of what arts can do and can be. And so we're trying to bridge that gap to a certain extent to really cultivate that next generation of artists and patrons. But then in some ways, it is much more educational. We have had for many years a fellowship program where we bring in four excellent college orchestra musicians to play with the Brit Festival Orchestra. And so that's very high level education, right? So it really is kind of everywhere in between. And then we're we're about to launch this new project called the Here and Now Project that is all about um, the synthesis of creating art in nature. And it is more about the creation of art than experiencing a performance. So this is going to be an intergenerational program that um, we're going to have folks of all ages who can participate in things like sound mapping walks and uh, fresh air painting and all kinds of things like that. So we're we're in the pilot year of that program this coming year. Oh, that's cool. And we're going to be just testing that out with a couple of our kind of 
smaller groups, and then hopefully we'll be able to grow that over time. And of course, that just depends on the generosity of donor support because it's all admission free. And does that um, does that money get like earmarked somehow? Like when donors donate, do they um, say, you know, I want this to go towards that program, or I want it to go towards, you know, the the main people stage can certainly stuff do that. that and if you if you go or... to Britfest.org, I think it's Britfest.org/slash/donate. You can certainly pre-allocate your funds, but also the very best thing you can do for any nonprofit is to donate just to the general operating fund, because then we have the ability to say, you know what, we'd really like to do this education program this year, and then we can take that money and allocate it. But but that's part of the budgeting process is really figuring out what are our priorities of the next year and how are we going to come up with the money to fund them? It is actually, you know, it's it's this really fun geometry problem, but it's, it's math, but it's really about what you value. And I think that's something that sometimes we lose in when we think about budgeting, right? It it doesn't sound shiny, but it actually is really, really fun because you get to figure out like what your commitments are for the next year and how you're going to come up with it. So, and I love the fundraising part because that's, that's like matchmaking. Yeah, absolutely. And and you get to kind of exactly. be more involved. In I the love knowing that, you know, all that. Susie yeah, Q really cool. loves this. Yes. And and so when that program can come to fruition, yeah. I'm like, I know who's going to love doing that. And that's my favorite. Yeah. That's so cool. So what was uh, did you how did you kind of get the role that you have now? Like, did you uh, train with the, your predecessor or like, a how great did that, question. How, how I was that been, transition? I uh, managing arts organizations for a long time. And so we went through the interview process and my predecessor, Donna Briggs, was very generous to stay on and help kind of smooth the transition, oh, um, which is so crucial. I mean, it's a big oh, and great. complex organization and Absolutely. she was so generous to do that despite being very very ready to enjoy her long-earned retirement. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm you sure. know, anytime yeah. you have a leadership transition like this, the most important thing I think is to find somebody who is willing to walk in and listen before starting to clunk heads together, right. you know? I, and I made a very right. clear commitment Absolutely. to myself and to the team that I wouldn't change anything meaningful right. for a year. Yeah, because kind of it, you just have to That's know. A great idea. Yeah. yeah. And especially for me coming into a community right. like this one, I didn't want to be the person from Portland yes. coming into a community and just saying like, oh, we're going to sweep everything, like you know, sweep the map off the table. Yeah. You don't know what's working and what's not. Right. And I was lucky to arrive here right, right before the season Absolutely. started last year. So I got the wonderful experience of spending three and a half months just sort of being on this wild ride that's great. right yeah. and then and then really getting to spend the rest of that year observing and so now we're getting ready to launch into a strategic plan um, we have a new vision for 2028 that really is all about community and discovery and making sure that Brit is accessible and really facing the future um, and we're also we're also prioritizing stewardship of our natural resources as part of that plan which is so essential yeah. I think yeah, I noticed that during uh, the summer, uh, one of the one of the summer shows, I think you mentioned something about how you guys have partnered with um, one of the recycling yeah. companies here, which I think is super. Yeah, cool. we uh, we, have goal, um, we have a goal. We have a goal of being really cool. one of being. Uh, let's just be bold. We have a goal of being the greenest 
music venue in the country. Um, And I think we've got a long way to go. We've just taken the first steps of that. But artists and musicians really know that music festivals create a lot of waste. And so this is something that's very top of mind for folks as they're touring. And Brit has a unique financial challenge. Our venue only seats 2,200 people. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and somehow it, it still feels spacious. It does. And, and it's super yeah, intimate. that's one of my favorite things about it. But it means it. that for most artists, we're, you know, the lowest fee that they've taken for their whole tour, right? right? And so for us to remain right. competitive, right. we do have to strengthen that financial piece. Yes. But we also have to figure out other ways, I think, to be something so special. Yeah, and and that's a really good point because you can use that as an attraction because, hey, who doesn't want, you know, to have that beautiful status of this is, uh, you know, an environmentally Absolutely. friendly um, uh, To be a zero-waste venue yeah. would be yeah, the ultimate dream. So cool. yeah. We're looking at renewable power sources. Yeah. We're looking at, you know, maybe even an electric bus to help people that's get up. Great get up the hill um we're looking at uh this summer we did compost all of our all of our food waste or at least as much of it as we could Um, we're looking at eliminating single-use plastics within the next year or two and then starting to also look at the transit of where all of our concessions food comes from where all of our alcohol comes from all of that stuff we're looking at all of it and um it's going to be a process you know it's going to be a process no doubt no doubt, but that's yeah, that's cool. You. I'm really glad that you guys are taking that yeah, step. That's you. super cool. That's and I'm sure that's a lot of logistics on top of all the other stuff that. Well, you, but we you have a team that's really passionate on. about it, and our chief operating officer Christopher Shockey has really just grabbed this one and run with it, and that is so essential um, so to have to have people who are championing that's it so on good. the ground. Absolutely. So it's not just me saying we're going to do this, and then Absolutely. it never happens. Absolutely, right, yeah, you have to have people behind you. So actually, that great, uh, brings up a point I was going to ask. Um, how big, in terms of personnel, is the uh, Brit organization in terms of full-time versus, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, volunteer So our full-time staff. year-round staff is, right. I think, 14 of us now. It is, but, it, you know, it's, okay, well, it's fascinating. So this year, for yeah. example, when we had all of those shows smoked out, what people could not possibly understand is... That's two human beings manually refunding every ticket, which is wild. Yeah, I I figured it was something like that. And then we have one person in addition to that who's making sure that it gets reported correctly on our finances. So, so it's it's a small but mighty team, and and it is. I mean, I we we aim to be a great place to work. Um, We have folks who have been with us for you know over thirty years. Um, and then we have folks who have been with us for less than a year, and it's really nice to have that balance. Absolutely, yeah. You don't want you don't want people to stay there longer than they should, and you want people to be excited and exactly. you know, come in with the passion and fire. Well, that, and I know, think an, it's also so great have, to have yeah. people who have institutional memory, you know, who remember how I mean, Britain right, has absolutely. grown tremendously in the last 30 years. Yeah. And so to have folks on staff who who can say, yeah, you know, we tried that 30 years ago and it didn't work. And here's why is so, in, so, no, so important. That's a, no, that's, that's a really good point. Cause actually even, you know, in my lifetime, my parents, uh, I was fortunate enough to go to the Brit when I was, I don't know, 
eight or nine years old and I've seen the transition and it's crazy how much bigger it is Do you remember what, now your, your, what your first Brit show then. was? Like, I don't remember what my first one is was, but I know, you know, I know a couple of the early ones that I went to. Absolutely um, epic. I saw Crosby, Stills and Nash, which, which is very epic. And, um, you know, I, I saw, um, I saw Yeah, so Ringo you saw Ringo Starr Star the first time he came day. through, huh? That's awesome. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Yeah, I think it was the first. I imagine it was the I first. I think this, this was, was his second time through. This, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I've seen some really great concerts even back in the day. And the uh, I remember when that like grassy front area right by the stage was uh, yep. like just open seating. and you Oh, there's a whole in industry of people like <laughs> in my age group who as as teens and tweens they were brit line sitters and it was like an economy there was an entire oh, yeah, economy no, of the brit line sitters definitely i want to say that my parents probably hired yeah, someone back absolutely. in the day absolutely we once have one to, person to who worked backstage yeah. in our uh in our concession or excuse me our catering area for backstage who um is probably in his mid 30s now and was a brit line sitter as a kid and it's just so much fun to see it all come full circle like that i love it yeah, yeah, it's an amazing no, thing. It's so cool. I yeah. love that. And there is a part of me that also kind of likes that it's now a little bit more uh, official. You can pay for your ticket. You don't Absolutely. have to sit there for, you know, two well, hours Well, and it's one of those interesting challenges there, so. as the organization grows up and professionalizes. There are things that have had to change. You know, one thing that I think has, has been a really tough pill for a lot of people to swallow is that the, um, the wooden fence all up the road on, I think it's First Street, yes. used to be a chain link fence and yes. folks could watch through it. And, yes. you know, there that. are a lot of safety reasons yes. that it's really actually quite important to not have clear sight lines through there. And I think, you know, God forbid, an active shooter situation, for example, that yeah. wooden fence is crucial. So some of the changes are like, they're very complex. They're yes. complex things. No, Yes. No, that's actually a good point. I never even thought of that, but it, it actually absolutely makes sense. And also, well, there's that too, right? Ticket sales as well, well because I remember back back in the day when that was Chainlink, uh, there were absolutely people lined all the Why way Why wouldn't up, you? Like yeah. watching through And I there, think there was so. wonderful community yeah, 100%, in that. Yeah, 100%. It's free. Um, but, you know, you yeah. there, there are things that just have to change as the world changes sure. and... And that's a tough one, but Certainly. yeah. So, so back to the staffing question. So, the, the fourteen year round full timers. Okay. Um, that's that's sort of our core staff. Sure. And then in the summertime, we expand pretty dramatically, both in terms of seasonal staff and in terms of volunteers. So, we bring in probably close to fifty seasonal staff members, wow. and that's our production team, wow. our front of house team, more box officers, yeah. um, you know, just a ton of folks who, who help make it happen. And what um, distribution of those 50 additional people are, so that's all are paid. paid versus And unpaid. then in addition to that, we recruit about 350 okay. wow. volunteers. And, and, you know, one wow, of the, one of the questions huge. you asked was, is it hard to get the volunteers? Yeah. We are so lucky. We have incredibly devoted volunteers. Nice. And volunteering at Brit is dang nice. fun. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You get to see yeah. all and, the shows And also you're, like, Why not? in the yeah. mix of, like, making things happen. Yeah. And yeah. so our volunteers really... It, yeah. I think this That's year so we cool. did the math. If we paid our volunteers minimum wage... 
I think it would have been close to $200,000 for the time that they gave us, which is remarkable. That that just shows. That's amazing. Well, it helps to have, you know, something that so many people are excited about as a, uh, Absolutely. A, uh, organization, you know. And I can't tell you, I mean, it's it it's a really great, like, find make people. friends. And we've had a number of folks who got married uh, out of no. meeting at the volunteer, That's in the volunteer yeah, group. No so it's pretty amazing. That's such, yeah. It actually makes sense. That's kind of, Absolutely. it's such a great uh, shared opportunity. opportunity. Shared, yeah, shared experiences. So cool. and I love that. What about um, your, your finding of kind of the technical staff totally. that you know, does the soundboard and all that kind of stuff? You is know, that, we are really, trickier? really lucky. Um, George Rellis, who is our audio engineer, has been our audio engineer for 43 mm-hmm. years. And George is amazing. Wow. George, he's, he's incredible. Definitely. He's very and talented. And he brings in all of that. Say. Yeah. The, the big audio rig is George's and he brings that in and we rent it for the summer. But he's also always up to date with the best technology. So we're proud to say we have the best sound system on the West Coast. It's fabulous. Yeah, you guys really do. It's it's very impressive. And I also have to say uh, from, you know, when I was younger, going to a lot of concerts all over the place, like I'm so thankful that the Brit does not blast your eardrums out with I totally it just being agree insanely with you. loud. That's yeah, and a, so part of that is related highlight. to our conditional <laughs> use permit with the city because okay. we have an upward, an upper limit on our decibels sure. um, and we monitor it every minute and then sure. we have to make sure we're for the hour under the average. But it does make it so that you're not getting your ears blasted out. And, and it's yeah, so much better. I think it ends and you know up what? Being a the music just sounds better. Anyway. Yeah. And yeah. it takes a sophisticated artist it really does. to mix yeah. at a lower level. Um, and most artists, most musicians who come through bring their own sound person and George really supervises and makes sure that, oh, cool. that they know how to use the board and nothing's oh, going cool. wrong. Um, I, I kind of figured that absolutely. because you can definitely tell a difference in style absolutely. between different musicians. That's actually really cool. Um, it's cool that they have the exactly. ability to, you know, though I will say that own. the shows, the, yeah, the shows that George idea. gets to mix, yeah. George knows the space. He knows the community and he knows the system. And boy, there's something magic about when he's mixing. It's really special. So it totally depends on the artist. So he mixes the orchestra shows. And then any artist who comes through, I think think Leanne Rimes had George mix, for example. Um, And occasionally an artist will come through and, and want George to do the mix. And I'm always so happy when he does. And then George has this really wonderful... Uh, assistant sound engineer who joined us for the first time this year. And then we brought in a fabulous lighting designer. We've had some wonderful LDs and this year's lighting designer was just excellent. Um, And so we're just really lucky. We have a wonderful team of people who love being here. I love that. Yeah. Such a, such a cool setup. Um, So what is the process for you guys to get such uh, talented and amazing musicians and artists and you know comedians. Well, and we're in the that. thick how, of that right that now. Work. Um, it's a it's a combination of things. So some people reach out to us proactively, and it's a lot of times folks who've been to Brit before, and know that it's something special. Yes. And I would love to talk a little bit about what it yes. is from the artist perspective in a minute. Sure. But but also some of them are folks that we find out are on tour, and okay. so we reach out. Yeah. And sometimes it's folks who are on tour. And they need a date between Portland and San Francisco, right? And so we're perfect. We're right on the I-5 corridor. Um, 
one of the interesting things is that artists or, or venues rather, we, uh, we all write in exclusivity clauses for when an artist is at our venue because okay. you want to make sure that you're not going to pay, you know, $150,000 for somebody to do a show and then they're going to drive up the road 45 minutes and do yes. another show. You want to make sure you maximize yes. your ticket sales. That's a great point. So we are just outside the exclusivity ranges for both Portland and San Francisco, which really makes us a, a wonderful organic about, stopover. Then we are outside of that usually. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. We have, we have, this, um, we have this very large animal called Live Nation. And for smaller presenters like Brit, Live Nation can be a super challenging thing. Um, it's, it's wonderful to have an organization that really has the resources to produce some of these huge tours that they can do. But it's a dangerous thing too. So what, Live explain Nation to me, what is, what is Live a Nation? concert producer. They also own Ticketmaster. And yeah. so they own a oh, number wow. of yeah. large venues and they own the venue in Bend. Oh, I didn't realize that there was kind of, I don't want to, collusion sounds a little bit like uh, pejorative, but, uh, but like there's a deep connection between the ticket sales companies and the venues. It is interesting. And, and if you look really at, um, I, I think it was at, I think it was Congress, uh, the Taylor Swift ticket debacle. Yes. Um, Oh, that's yes. quite, I'm, I'm that's aware quite tied sister. up in this. And, <laughs> and so there's been some talk about is okay. Live Nation and Ticketmaster being one and the same? Is that a monopoly? And I think it's a worthy conversation right. for us yeah. to have. So, right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah there could be maybe it's an antitrust case so, there. But, yeah. you know, at yeah, the I same time, that. it's all yeah. part of the same ecosystem. Yeah. And so it benefits all of us for everyone to do well. It also, I think hopefully Live Nation is very aware that it benefits Live Nation to have small venues like us. Um, the danger is, of course, sometimes that it seems like they are a very big fish trying to eat all of the other fish. So, we, you know, we're all trying to create this very healthy ecosystem. And, and luckily, we at Brit have a very, very positive relationship with the folks who run um, the Live Nation venues in Portland and in um, Bend and San Francisco. Oh, so ultimately, it's those oh, human relationships so that cool. are so important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's most of the time when it, when business is uh, done. At the end of the day, it's all about like it's kind the of people. the in person, yeah, human the connection aspect, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And and absolutely. Numbers well, and, and that that's what we secondary. hope, and that's why I think yeah. smaller venues are so valuable because because yes, certainly we are looking at the bottom line, but but we're a nonprofit five hundred one c three, and so for us, everything we do is for community benefit, and it is therefore about being the humanist, right? Yes. And, and certainly wanting to be very thoughtful about our resources because right. we, in particular, receive quite a bit of donated funding. And okay. so we, we, are good, we have to be good stewards of that. But I think part of being good stewards of that is making sure that we're serving the people. Absolutely, absolutely. That makes sense. Um, are you aware of any other um, nonprofit uh, um, 
performing arts venues like this in or or in Oregon or really anywhere in the West Coast? Is it's this, fairly this unique. Is unique. Um, I will say unique, I worked right? I worked at Sterngrove Festival in San Francisco okay. for several years, and it's quite similar to us in certain ways. Sterngrove is a really fascinating model because they do ten concerts each summer, ten consecutive Sundays, and they're all admission oh, wow. free, which is fascinating. Yeah. They have a very beautiful amphitheater out by the ocean that was designed by Lawrence Halperin. Um, it's wonderful space and they bring in really incredible acts and managed to do that entirely based on fundraising. And it's, it's fascinating. It's in a eucalyptus grove. And so there will be 20,000 people just all the way crammed up the hill. And it's, it's really magical. So Stern Grove is something very That's special. Really impressive. There are a number of other but they also they also absolutely have, you know the bay absolutely. area money behind them so no, you can't no, discount also, that too much there's a really wonderful yeah. ecosystem of independent venues um and here in Oregon in particular the independent venue association has been so crucial to helping all of us survive the pandemic and come back post pandemic and oh that's so yeah. cool Let's talk about it. Actually, that's a great yeah. segue. Yeah. What, yeah. What What was the pandemic like for the brick? Because I, I mean, you yeah. guys well, pretty you much know, shut down, right? Well, when your business model is is gatherings of is large gatherings of people, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't work very well. Yeah, and that, you know, yeah, Oregon had the longest shutdown of any state in the country, and the arts were the first shutdown wow. and the last yeah. that were allowed to return. And so, for arts organizations, it was that's, it was a paralyzing time. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, yeah. don't want to even second guess the decision making of that because we all did it. We went through it. It was a global event, but it was nevertheless very, very challenging. Um, and I think yes, for so, for, for I mean, for so really for everyone, we've been through yeah. as, a, as a society globally, we've been through a collective trauma that I don't think we've begun to process. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's kind of wild because it's international. So you, we all have lived through the exact absolutely same crazy, arguably the most global the trauma time. that has ever happened as a species, right? Well, yeah. for sure, in our yeah. lifetime, I would say absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm sure the Spanish flu back in the eight, uh, 1918 ranks up there, but it was definitely not as. Um, well-known internationally exactly. that was all happening yeah. at the same time exactly. and all that so that certainly the I most mean, and, spread of information and you know we were all time. we were all isolated yeah. but also it was the most universal experience that we could have been having and so it was a very interesting time right yeah i think there were a lot of positives that came out of you know obviously a pretty negative time for a lot of people because it allowed yeah. people to yeah. adjust their lifestyles so much and in ways totally. that they would have never done before. I'm, sh you know, obviously there yeah. were horrible things that happened from it. I, but yeah, I totally see that, and I think one thing sure. that's so interesting is that the world, I think, irrevocably changed during that time, and we are only, I think, begin. We're still in it to yeah. a certain extent, and so I, I think all of us are having to adjust to a world that has fundamentally changed. And for kids who were born or or were very young during the pandemic. I think they perceive the world in a way that I actually can't even perceive, right? Yeah, Which I, is fascinating. 
Yeah, I. it's got to be such a weird experience if you're, you know, in the first or second grade or something like that and, and school is completely shut down and you're... You exactly. Know, you're essentially homeschooled for... Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. That's that's so interesting. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be um, something that kids are going to tell their next For a long time. Yeah, know, I mean, for, if you think about plagues, about this, yeah. you know, if you think about plagues throughout human history, after every plague, there's been a renaissance. And so That's I think really point. kind of yeah, totally. thinking about arts organizations, I think what we have to do is, is position ourselves to be a part and be a, a, a kind of galvanizer of that post-pandemic renaissance um, and I think arts organizations are struggling right now. I know arts organizations are struggling right now. And I look at so many of our fabulous peer organizations that are really struggling to get people back into, into ticket buying spaces. Brit has been very fortunate for a couple of reasons. One, we're outdoors, which of course right. is a liability for smoke, but right. for, um, for, you know, social distancing and, and the spread of, COVID has been very, very fortuitous for us. And we also, we, we serve a very diverse audience. Because of the nature of the different types of programs that we produce, we serve every, every part of the political spectrum, every part of the social spectrum. We do everything possible to serve the broadest possible audience, age-wise, demographically, where people live, um, and and that is a huge asset when you're returning from a crisis like this because you are not reliant on one group. Absolutely, yeah, that's that's a really good point. That is actually a really good point. Um, and and thank goodness for that because it it is. I feel like um, Brit and things like that are such a good unifier of people because we all kind of you know came back from this traumatic event. And is kind of one of the first things I actually remember uh, yep. that we did because it was outdoors yep. that we did post pandemic. And it was just this like breath of fresh air. Oh, you know, we're able to reunify. Well, and think about what is the, the purpose of the arts, of this area. right? It, I think I think that the arts allow us to interpret the world and artists are sort of prophets that yes. interpret the, who interpret the world for us. And so having gone through this really traumatic time where everything changed and everything shifted and we were so alone to then have the opportunity to put ourselves right in the way of beauty or right in the way of fun has been essential. And so I think that's, that's really a huge part of the role that we play. Absolutely. It's a a form of, and you know, I worked with an artist named Anna Devere Smith. She's a playwright and an activist. She's fabulous. I think, I think she was a MacArthur fellow. Um, and I believe she's won a couple Tony Awards, though I might be wrong about that. Maybe research that before, <laughs> before we post it. But uh, <laughs> sure, Anna sure. does yeah. a lot of work about um, arts and the moral imagination okay. and the fact that the arts enable us to, um, to step into another person's lived experience because we are, we are, in, we are, we are stepping into um, how they interpret the world through color or shape or right. sound or, or words. And that is magic. Um, but it also, it also forces us to put our own experience just off to the side for a second and live through, through the vantage point of somebody else. And I think 
that is something when we were in isolation for two years that all of us missed desperately. I don't know about you. I got very weird there. I, I think I think everyone got weird Absolutely. in their own, you know, unique ways. Absolutely. But I, yeah, like oh, yeah. I became kind of a, a baker uh, yeah. when I've never really yeah. baked in my life. So yeah. that was kind of weird. <laughs> there were, and yeah. other ways too. But yeah, no, absolutely. Everyone yeah. had their own way of kind of dealing with the We all got a little uh, feral, right? Trauma <laughs> and isolation. <laughs> feral, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was it yeah. was definitely uh, a great day when absolutely. we could all sort of well, step back Well, and for Brit, you know, we were, we were quiet for two years. And again, I want to just credit my predecessor, Donna, for really just making incredibly smart moves, doing incredible grant writing and fundraising during that time so that when we came out of the pandemic, we were still quite strong. And thank goodness for that, because I think I I came from Portland, where arts organizations currently are absolutely struggling. Um, And really, here in in the Valley, I think what we've seen is, especially small arts organizations have bonded so very much with their communities that, that we're all coming back in a way that's quite strong and really has a unique voice. Um, And I, I just treasure that. That's so great. I love that. I, I'm I'm so thankful for that because it it is one of those things that you um, that could have just been lost if yeah if finances weren't right or whatever because it's it it would be so easy for those 14 people to disband and you know there's just no money people can't just volunteer absolutely. their time full time and that's so, something that like yeah, as a leader yeah, I absolutely for the believe is that we pay people for their time and right. we you know we we want to be a workplace right. of choice. Um, well, welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> um, welcome back to the show. Yeah, welcome back to the show. Um, so back to um, the artists uh, yeah. and your your process of getting them. Um, how how do you kind of... Are you looking for artists um, based on the demographic of the people in the Rogue Valley? It's a really excellent question. So we are trying to move more in the direction of being super thoughtful about serving that broadest possible audience by really curating the list of concerts so that it addresses different demographic groups. Um, a lot of it's magic, you know, and a lot of it is also like you're, you know, three quarters away through booking the season and then a legend drops in your lap and yeah. you're like, you know what? We're definitely going to take that person. Yes. And we have a fixed number of concert dates. So it's a little bit of everything. And so is that the fixed number of concert dates? Is that um, based on that permitting um, restriction that you were talking about earlier? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. You know, I think it's important to remember that Brit seats 2,200 people. Yes. And the city of Jacksonville uh, the population of Jacksonville is 2,800 people. Yeah, so that's really, crazy. really, we're effectively doubling the size of Jacksonville. And on you a concert feel it night. as a yeah. as someone that has lived in Jacksonville. Whenever the brick of comes course. in, it fills up the town like crazy. And we do not want to be the 800 pound gorilla that comes in and makes a mess and makes a lot of noise and leaves. So we're trying to be very thoughtful about how we proceed. Yeah. With like, what does what does growth look like, and how do we as an arts organization serve a broad broad audience and an even broader audience without without overstraining sure. our relationship with our very wonderful neighbors who you know really many of them just 
are there living their lives. So yeah, we're, we're, totally. we're here over the, <laughs> totally. over the hill. So it's, it's an interesting thing. But yeah, when we think about booking, a lot of it is looking at um, diversity of the audience that we want to serve. So for example, we want to make sure that we've got a certain amount of country. Yes. We want to totally. make sure that we have um, something that appeals to a lot of age groups. And yeah. one thing that we're paying careful attention to right now is that we need some advice from some Gen Z folks on on what's cool. I'm 42 now. Like, I'm doing my best, but I, <laughs> I do not know what's cool yeah, when no. you're 21. I, I, I'm in your same boat with that. Yeah. I feel like my, uh, I'm definitely not with it with the young people music anymore and like i love finding new music and that's so wonderful so i think just trying to reach out to folks who might have that expertise is really really helpful and we're going to be uh we're going to be doing some interesting things on social media this year where we ask folks like what should we be listening to that's a great idea because i want i want to learn new music yeah absolutely and that's that's such a cool way to to reach out to the community and kind of get feedback on on what um what there's demand for exactly right yeah and so so those are all the kind of bits and pieces and and it's not a perfect yeah. It's not a perfect system, but one thing we do use a lot is we look at the data of like what are people listening to online. Yes, um, we love checking out the JPR playlist. Oh, I love and JPR. seeing like what are what are they playing? Yeah, absolutely, that's so, a great idea. Yeah, there's just a lot. There's a lot, but there's also so much music out there that yes, you know, it's it, that's why I love programming so much. I, and and it I think ever since. Um, the rise of Spotify and streaming and all this, it just has exploded the space of uh, musicians that maybe aren't even making a living off of it, but you know, they're talented nonetheless. Oh, totally. And and there's just so much more variety than there ever has been, which is really exciting. Oh, it is. And you know, you look at somebody like Noah Cahan, who was, I think, just like a TikTok star. Interesting. And was doing this beautiful you know, short performance format on TikTok yeah. and is now selling out very large venues, multiple nights. And so, you know, social media plays this really important role in us Absolutely. understanding what's coming up. Yeah, no, and and the feedback loop is faster than it ever has. And we're not in that age of, you know, the musicians or, or the artists aren't, uh, aren't, recognize until after they die and all that absolutely so thank goodness for that yeah. yeah and there's still i mean i'm sure there will still be some of that sure. you know you Certainly. look at somebody like helma of clint or something yeah. like that where it's like oh man you know that's been in somebody's attic forever but i yeah. do think that with the advent of social media it has changed the pace of that totally do you guys keep track of um the demographics that show up to the shows we're working on being better with our data okay. so aspirationally we would love to have a clear sense of of who's coming to our shows one of the really big challenges that we're facing is that um third-party ticket resellers are a crisis for small organizations like ours so folks will come on to our site and they will buy a whole bunch of tickets and then they will resell them to a third-party vendor and we have no way of authenticating those tickets first of all and they always jack up the prices. Britt keeps our prices really reasonable on no, purpose. No, they are. Absolutely. But then we also don't know who's coming to our shows. Yes. Right? No, that causes a lot of problems. It, it does. And I'll tell you what, with the with the smoke cancellations, it was a crisis because 
we can only refund to the person who originally bought the ticket from us. Oh, so it ends up going back to the reseller. Exactly. And then they have to figure out who gets that money if they do if at all. If they do, if yeah. they bother. Right. And so that's something that we know is like making sure that we're being good stewards of our customers. That's yeah. that's but but you know, if you go online right now and you search for um let's say let's say you searched for Shaky Graves yeah concert great near show me. by the way i saw thank that thank you fabulous yes. show yeah, loved it. um brit would have been like the sixth or seventh thing down because these third-party resellers have so much money yeah that they can really bump up on their seo totally and, and it's a real and they're probably even paying per click potentially exactly yeah, no. exactly so as a, as a small nonprofit, it really that's a huge issue that we're facing yeah, and, and for local people, definitely go to the Brit website to buy your tickets. I've made the mistake once. I will never make it again because you pay like twice as much. Easily. Yeah, easily. And and there's no benefit whatsoever. No, we yeah. had we had folks, you know, when we did the Princess Bride with Orchestra this past year, um, we had folks who bought lawn tickets, which we were selling for $20, yeah. and they went online and didn't, didn't clicked the BritFest.org site, went somewhere else, and they paid $90 a ticket for it. And it's just heartbreaking <laughs> yeah, because, like, you know... It's not your guys' fault, but No, it's, but yeah. we want to make sure people have a good experience, right. and, and we're pricing them the way that we are on purpose because right. we want to serve our community. Do Does the price adjust on the tickets based on supply and demand? So we're looking at dynamic pricing as a potential model. It's okay. not something Britt has done before, Yeah, but it is something that I've done before at other arts organizations. It's I've not a managed. bad idea. It's Everybody does it. Airlines yeah. do it. Every other concert venue right. does it. Well, and it it's and a little it, complicated. It but also benefits the uh, early comers. Absolutely. The, yeah. And and it doesn't um, it doesn't make it so it's impossible to find tickets if you're even late to the show. Because exactly. Because it'll be more expensive. But yeah, you pay yeah. for it. And the artist benefits because, right. of course, they get that percentage right. of the ticket sale. And then we get that. We benefit as well. And, you know, every dollar that we bring in is really reinvested into our community. It's, you know, making the park more beautiful or fixing things or, you know, presenting more free education programs or, you know, being able to afford an, an even more wonderful movie the next year to, yes. to do with the orchestra. So it really is something that, that I hope people, if they remember nothing else, yeah. buy your tickets from BritFest.org. Yeah. yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Um, do you guys manage the uh, Brit Trails? We don't. No, the city of Jacksonville manages the Brit Trails, okay. but they are so wonderful, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, they're so lovely. Yep. And several years ago, we did this fabulous program um, in conjunction with the Brit Trails. We had the composer Caroline Shaw, who is a Pulitzer-winning composer, wow. who wrote this piece for the orchestra. Um, and it was written specifically for the pandemic. So the orchestra was broken into small chamber groups and they were scattered around the trails. Oh, that's so cool. And so you hiked the trails and you got to experience this piece kind of... Um, no way. You know, in, in space and time. Yeah. And so we're hoping to bring that back at some point. That's a really cool and idea. And do that again. Because I, like I think that conjunction of nature and music together is totally. one of the things that makes Brit special. Yeah, no, that's such a the, such a unique experience. I can't imagine like any other place. No, it's amazing. do that. That's really yeah. cool. I love yeah. that. Um, when it comes to like the classical pieces, uh, are you and your team involved in um, what gets played or is that more up to the conductor and the orchestra themselves? 
Great question. We are right now in the midst of transition with our music director for the orchestra. Teddy Abrams was with us for 10 years and his his career has just blown up in the most wonderful way. That's amazing. Good and for him. so he has moved on. This coming summer, uh, we will have three guest conductors. Um, when is this going to air, do you think? Good question. Probably within the next week or two. Okay. Yes. So I can't tell you who they are okay. yet. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we'll be we'll Fine. be sending out a press release quite sure. soon, but it's a really wonderful combination of three conductors and they work they work each of them to come up with programs, but then ultimately I weigh in on those as sure. well because we want to make sure that it's not just a great program you know, in a little balloon over here, it really serves the community that we serve. So there's a lot of give and take. And I am so lucky to be working with conductors who are really fun programming partners. Yeah. And how does that work with your background being in, uh, being in an or or in an orchestra setting? Like, um, I'm sure that's got to be very exciting. Oh, I love it. I love programming. Yeah. Yeah, And you know, it's, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting mix because we want to make sure that we're giving folks something that they know because you want to. I mean, you want to come and experience something that you know, but also you want to come and be delighted and surprised. Totally, right? Totally. Yeah. So there's a combination of that, and that's been so much fun. Yeah. And coming from my background as a hardcore orchestra nerd, yeah, <laughs> um, that's been really, really rewarding yeah. to get to work with conductors and and think about that and and think about what's going to be unique and special for Brit. Yep, absolutely. That makes sense. Um, Let's see, where are we at? Uh, <laughs> yeah, right? We've meandered. I know, we have meandered, but I love that. That's, that's always fun. Um, oh, yeah, so how, how, uh, how do people get more involved in the Brit organization if they're interested? Um, and, and like, yeah, is that something that you, you do on the website or in person? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I think the best so first of all, there are a lot of different ways you can get involved at Brit. You can be a volunteer, which is actually so, so fun. Yeah. You can host an orchestra musician. We place our orchestra musicians with host families. So you can do that. Um, you can just come and join, you know, all kinds of ticketed events and, and become a member. Yeah. We're actually about to launch our membership drive for the year. Um, and membership is a great way to get involved because you pay a fairly modest fee up front, but you get all kinds of benefits, things like parking. Oh, that's excellent. And access to our hospitality deck, which is a really wonderful private area. Um, You also get first access to tickets. That's my favorite aspect. Yeah, I mean, it's hugely important. Um, And so becoming a member gives you a little bit more behind the scenes access, and then you can really plug into what are the things you want to be doing. Um, so those are those are really wonderful ways to get involved. I would say volunteering is just such a great way to be a part of the Brit organization yeah, and, absolutely. and experience what it's like behind the scenes. Where is uh, the uh, headquarters? <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave that one. I'll tell you. I'll tell you, but it's not great for public consumption. We currently own a old Pacific Power Administrative Office in downtown Medford. No way. It no is. Way. <laughs> we are working on trying to get to Jacksonville because I yes, feel like that's a great idea. Oh, why not? Why not? And you know, yeah. I feel like right now we sort of are the 800 pound gorilla because 
we come in, we make a mess and we leave, right? <laughs> yeah. And then we go back to our office in Medford. Yeah, and, that's funny. And it's so essential to be there in the town yep. and really understanding the issues that the neighbors are dealing yeah, with. Yeah, and that's and, a great idea too because, you you know, people can potentially buy tickets in person. Exactly. Or get, you know, meet the staff behind all the shows in person and all that. I love that. Well, and Britt is arguably the primary economic driver of Jacksonville. Without a doubt. Um, so we are... We are currently a, about a five and a half million dollar a year organization, but the economic impact that we generate, which is restaurants yeah. and um, hotel stays, is well in excess of ten million dollars a year. Tourism to the entire valley, exactly to the yeah. whole valley. Yeah. Um, and so, when you look at that, it's I think important for us to have our boots on the ground in the town that we are the most that we're impacting the very most. Um, and also, I think that it's. You know, I, I spend a ton of time in Jayville. Yeah. I love it there. All of my friends are there. It's beautiful. We have wonderful relationships with the, the city administrators and city council. And all of these people really make it possible for us to pull this massive thing off every yeah. year. But if we're not there in person, going to the restaurants and getting our lunch at the cafes and and you know, grabbing a drink at Boomtown after work, yep. that's really where you meet other people and, and that's the human to human thing. And again, we've talked about that already, that 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 person to person relationship is really the most essential, I think. Totally. And totally. that's something I think that we need to do a, a better job of, especially as we look to the future and say, if we're gonna say we're serving community we have to put our money where our mouth is in terms of like being there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good, good goal. I love yeah, it. Yeah. We're working on yeah, it. It's, I hope it as happens. we've discussed, you know, before this started, yeah. like Jacksonville's a very Jacksonville's expensive. insanely expensive. Yeah. So it's like, how do we make that happen? Yeah. And we own our downtown building free and clear. Oh, that's really cool. Which is, is really cool. cool. Yeah. But it's, it's just, you know, it's yeah. like 12 minutes from Jacksonville and yeah. it's a whole other world. What is the, um, the process uh, that you guys go through to get your side stage. Uh, oh bands. yeah, I really like. So, I like a lot of those. Yeah, our side stage bands are. Uh, so that's that's the Enfield Stage Performance Garden, okay. and we uh, we really focus on bringing local talent to that Enfield stage. It's so important for us to not just be bringing in musicians from outside the valley but also totally. to be really working with our local music community and so we go out and find bands that would really like to do that we try to pair folks with a main stage act that makes sense that makes sense yeah i have always found that the contextual connection between the side stage uh is very good it's, yeah it's, yeah but absolutely. but we have in the Rogue Valley, we are just rich yes. in incredible musicians and artists, we really aren't are. we? Yes. Oh, so I must say. One of the things I'm really excited about that we started last year was we opened the season with um, a neighborhood, what, what did we call it? The neighborhood launch party? The very first show of the year was, was an admission-free event. Oh, cool. That was three fabulous local, local bands. And they were on the main stage. No way. And it was fantastic. And we partnered with the food bank and we encouraged people to bring uh, food in lieu of tickets because it was admission free. Sure. And I think we brought in like 1,500 pounds of food. We had 750 people show up. That's so cool. And I hope we'll grow that this year. Yeah. Um, that's a great idea. showcasing our local talent is incredible. Totally. Using our 
our ability to gather people together for a common good and then, you know, boost the signal of the food bank is so important. And that's so cool. I yeah, love that. that's a yeah. great idea. So it's a lot of fun. And I hope we're going to do it again. So I hope everybody will show up for that one. Do you guys ever do um, some sort of like auditions for bands? You know, I don't know that we've done that for a while, but we've been we have been talking about how can we engage our local music community further and there's a lot there's a lot of conversation behind the scenes on what that might look for like. sure yeah i imagine i mean your guys's time is very limited and all that so. well and you know 14 people can do a lot but it's it's incredible how we have to prioritize i imagine what I imagine. what we pull off year to year so what does uh, a day in the life of uh, Abby look like? <laughs> <laughs> really a lot of meetings yeah, I, I imagine. <laughs> so many meetings uh yeah i mean I spend I spend hour to hour what I'm doing changes pretty dramatically. Sure. So totally. it might start with a meeting with the city officials in Jacksonville to talk about what went right or wrong in the season. Oh yeah, totally. Right? That's a great and idea. And then I might end up back at the office and having a meeting about a grant that we're about to file and totally. then maybe I spend an hour writing the last bits of that 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 are needed from me. Um, and then maybe we have a staff meeting yeah. for an hour. Yeah. And then maybe I sit down with our director of education for a half hour and figure out who we're going to be bringing for the next year or signing some contracts. And then maybe after that, I am working with our development team and our chief development officer on making some phone calls to thank people for gifts. And then, you know, maybe I'm spending an hour on budgeting. Yeah. So it is really... Oh, you can bounce around a lot. Bouncing sure. around a yeah. lot, which is which is great. Yeah. Um, that sounds actually very fun. It's really fun. Yeah. And I, I love that I have a comprehensive feeling of what's going on in all different parts of the organization. Totally. Yeah. That's so, so. cool. Um, let's see. Where are we going? Um, do you have any stories from, uh, I don't know, past performances, even, even just from this year or previous years that you're aware of that have been, uh, you know, like memorable performances that kind of have like a, a lasting sort of ethos or whatever you mean the the performance itself yeah in my two seasons i think i think i have a couple of just favorite favorite moments sure. and i think one of them was last season um when we had the american acoustic show which was chris Thiele and bands uh, and Sarah Jarose and bands that were like I think Watch House and Punch Brothers. Oh yeah. And so it was this fabulous bluegrass show. So, uh, contemporary bluegrass but bluegrass. Yeah. And first of all it was the perfect temperature. Yep. You know, sometimes you're out on the hill and it's just like this couldn't possibly get any better. And the sky's clear and the moon is rising behind the stage between the Ponderosa Pines. Yep. And that night they had thought through the narrative of that show. Did you go to that one? I didn't go to that one, sadly. I wish. So you know how sometimes you're at a show and they sing a song and then they pause and then they're figuring it out and then they do another song and then they chat with you a little bit and then they do another song. Yes. This show was like being taken on a journey. And they would finish one song and then maybe there was a storytelling moment, but it always was taking you by the hand into the next song. And as bands were switching, they didn't do a break between bands. So they would, one band would be on the last song of their set and 
as the song was playing, the next band would come in and join. Oh, that's so cool. And that's then people would come and go. And it was like, it was so beautiful. Yeah. And, and comforting. And kind of collaborative too. Unbelievably collaborative and playful and fun. And just, it was, it was a perfect show. That was a perfect one. And then this year, I mean, the Princess Bride with Orchestra. Oh, I've, I'm so sad I missed that one. My, my sister went to that one and <gasps> told me all about it, but I would have loved to go. Oh, it was great. perfect. First of all, I got to do the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. I got to dress up as Inigo Montoya and do the curtain <laughs> speech, great. which was a real life highlight for me. Um, I don't think I'll ever be that cool or dorky again. But um, <laughs> But just that experience, you know, that movie is just such a classic and it's it's funny you bring that up because uh my wife and i just finished it last oh night. nice so good well yeah. and there were these really wonderful moments where you know there are these long vistas like these long shots with with everybody riding through the hills and yeah. and if you were way up on the hill those shots looked like the hillside behind that's the so bread. cool i believe it yeah totally. and it was gorgeous yeah. gorgeous gorgeous and also just the amount of joy on the hill for that was an absolute delight that's so cool so that that. was really really special and i think for me it's always those moments where where the performers and the audience are kind of creating something special yeah in that moment it's like a it's a unique uh observation of that piece and yeah it's like so it's so it's completely different than how it was originally created, but in a very good way. <laughs> Absolutely. And and what I find so interesting is that when I talk to people about their favorite moments yeah. at the Brit, yeah. I hear the same stories again and again. And so it's not, it's not that we are having these experiences in isolation. Totally. When that magic happens, everyone on that hill knows that they're part of it. Yeah. And you can't quantify that. Yeah. And that is my favorite part of doing what I do. Yeah. And I feel like um, this year, I think probably my f- the most memorable performance for me was uh, the Shaky Graves concert. I, I, I've seen him once before and he was fantastic. But like, yeah, at the Brit was even better because you're so close, up close and personal. And, totally. And uh, yeah, it's just such a great venue for it. It is. And, yeah. you know, let's also just take a moment and acknowledge that his opening act, Katie Pruitt. Oh, yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. I feel like we just saw someone on the way to cool becoming a household name. I mean, yeah. she was incredible. Yep. I and totally so agree. that I think is one of the privileges, too. Yeah. And and I've actually noticed that, too, with um with a couple of the comedian acts that I've seen on the Hill. Like some of the openers are just as funny, if not better sometimes than I know. The, the actual main act, which I, I love seeing that. It's, so, it's cool. so much fun. And I love that when when we're able to, you know, Brit was one of the first places that Brandy Carlisle played regularly. No way. And she played as an opening act and then she came year after year after year. And now she is just She's huge. meteoric, yeah, right? Totally. But but it's so wonderful and rewarding, I think, for us to be able to say that we were part of growing somebody as an artist. They do the hard work, of course, but we get to we get to say that we were part of that. Well, and, and it's that's always incredible. that cool thing where you get to say, you know, I saw them before they were big. Absolutely. Like, so cool. Yeah. I have a friend. Fun. I have a very good friend who um, used to go see Lizzo play in like basement bars in Minneapolis. 
and like he's like i am famous <laughs> it doesn't matter that i'm not famous like i am famous because yeah, i no, did that it's hilarious it's so true totally um what are your thoughts on uh do you think that brit season could ever move a little earlier in the season because of the fire problem i know it affects your guys's ticket sale you know you have to it's deal huge. with all that it's a it's a bummer yeah, and you know, we're we're in the process now of just starting to look at what our options are. Yeah. Um, we have a very strict conditional use permit with the city of Jacksonville that defines the timeline in which we can have our events. Do you think they would ever be flexible on that at some point? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I do know that that conditional use permit was written in 2006. Okay. Before the fires were as bad as they are now. Exactly. And so the world is, I mean beyond the pandemic, the world is fundamentally changing. And when we look at being, when we look at being sustainable over the long term and making sure that not only can Brit continue to do the work that we do, but that Brit can continue to conserve the park and Brit can continue to bring people together for these super fun things. We are living in a world where in August, pretty reliably, we're going to get socked in by smoke yeah. at some point. And I don't have an immediate solution for this, but it is definitely, I would say the thing, one of the things that we talk about the most in the office are what are solutions. Yeah. And we know this is going to be a bigger dialogue with our community, with the folks in Jacksonville, with the folks at the city, with the neighbors, with our entire community. Totally. How do we approach this? Yeah. Um, and, and not only how do we approach this from having a plan for our concert dates, but also how do we approach this from the perspective of, is there a way that we as arts organizations can be part of correcting the situation? Absolutely. And I think part of that, part of that is certainly trying to become a zero waste festival and use renewables. But part of that is also probably stuff that I don't know. Again, I have three degrees in flute performance. <laughs> there are a lot of smart people who've probably thought about this more than I have. But um, but you, I think, have hit the nail on the head of the existential crisis that's facing all of our arts It's really, I mean, and it's, it's a problem with, yeah, everything in the Rogue Valley that exactly. is outdoor in the summer. Like, it's not unique to the, uh, to the Brit Festival, unfortunately. No, but. and, you know, you watch it happen. We had, we had the smoke roll in on an event that we were having, and, and we had not yet, the band had not yet said, no, we're not going to play. Yeah. And so we, we watched the AQI go from, I think, 76 to, like, 384 oh, in gosh. 30 minutes horrible and i actually might have been at that show yeah <laughs> yeah sure. and it was it was just one of those things where it's like five years ago we did not have the technology yes to be able to look at smoke models and know what was happening exactly we are starting now to have better technology around that and so we are starting to look at how do we how do we make decisions around that and yeah so do you guys how, think that you might, I don't know, build that into contracts and things like that going forward. Because I mean, I, I'm sure it's, it's going to have to be a big yeah. conversation with all of our artists. Yeah. Um, totally. And you know, I think I think it's important to remember that for artists, like if you show up here and you go in and and say you're singing, you're taking giant breaths. Yeah. So that you can sing. Yeah. If the AQI is 400. It's horrific even if you're not doing that. It's horrific even if you're not. And let's say you've got the rest of your tour right in front of you. You could do damage to your voice in one night that could impact the rest of your tour. And so it's so important for us to be upfront 
about that with our audiences, with our artists, with, yeah. with everyone. And then I am also looking out for my staff who, you know, yes, we offer respirators and, and we take care of our staff, but also sure. I don't want my staff out there hustling in an AQI that's inhumane. So all of this is all of this is part of the decision making process and and it's an evolving thing. So. I, yeah, and I'm I'm glad that you are so aware of it and already thinking about it and I, I yeah, totally understand that you guys are in a tough spot because it's of the, the use contracts and all that stuff. Um what do you what do you hear from artists post you know, a, a smoke event. Cause it's not like it's unique to the rogue Valley. I mean, they're seeing it in bend and Portland exactly. and stuff too. And you know, they've experienced it now in New York and, yes. and other places totally. that are not on the West coast. Right. So I think for artists, one thing that's important to remember is that they often do not have the kind of experience that we have yes. in terms of knowing what an AQI of two fifty looks and feels yes, like. Yes, We it's, live that. <laughs> yeah. It's very, um, nebulous you know there's this number and they're like what does that mean i say anything above 120 is pretty unbearable to me at least yeah 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 i i can hang in to about 200 and beyond that i'm just pretty toasted yeah and you know 250 is where we move into I, i think 200 is where we move into unhealthy for everyone and i think 250 or 300 is where we move into hazardous so we want to make sure we're thoughtful about that. For artists, it's sort of all over the map, you know? And I think it's important to remember this is their livelihood. Yep. Right? That's absolutely true. Yeah. And that is, it is devastating to lose a gig. Yeah. It is. Yeah, because, I mean, they potentially moved all of their equipment and everything all the way over here. Exactly. To, yeah. And, yeah. And if you're a touring artist, and let's say you have 50 dates, and you go on a tour every other, every other year, those 50 dates are a huge portion of your income for right. that period of time. And so it's really tricky. It's and, really and tricky. And you're potentially chasing the smoke the whole way too. That's you exactly like it. like hitting smoke after That's smoke. exactly oh, it. Oh man, that's brutal. Yeah. yeah it, that's and so it's, it's, a, it's a really complex problem. And, and I think it's going to, it, you're exactly right. It does not just touch this sector. Nope, it does it's not. all of us. Yep. And it's impacting everything from, you know, what wine grapes taste like and true. children's sports can yeah. those happen or not and you know um what's happening with the speedway and how do we support folks who are farmers and all of it all of it yeah yeah it's definitely going to become hopefully more of a public discourse for for really everyone in this kind of region because it's, I agree. it's yeah. so frequent and it's pretty much a given at this point that it's going to happen every year. Yeah. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. And this is, this is the situation that we've inherited. And you know, it's, it's what, what's that quote from Lord of the Rings? It's something like, you know, all of us born in such times wish that we weren't, but, oh, yeah. but leadership is what, or yeah, it's it's what you've been what you've been handed, what you yeah. do with what you've been handed. I'm getting that terribly wrong. No, but. no, no. I, I know what you're talking about, though. <laughs> it's it's close enough that yeah, the no. spirit of it remains. It, the spirit of it remains. <laughs> I think Gandalf said it. So yeah, you know. yes, totally. Everybody can Google that and tell me how I how I butchered it. <laughs> <laughs> close enough. Close enough. We get the we get the gist. Yeah. That's all that matters. Um. But yeah, that's I'm I'm glad that that's at the forefront of your yeah. guys's uh, thought process. Not only because it it's a bummer for the musicians and obviously the people to go, but but I think for the um, betterment of 
for, for the financial stability and all of that of the Brit long term, it's good to take that into account because it's yeah, yeah, it's just going to be a thing. Well, and we're also aware, you know, we had four smoke cancellations, and we know that our restaurant friends in Jacksonville yeah. got clobbered by us losing four shows. Yeah, and you know, the B and Bs in town got clobbered by us losing four shows, and and so we're. I am very aware of the level of responsibility that right. we hold for ensuring the solvency of of all of our fabulous community partners in Jacksonville particularly but throughout the valley. Yeah, man, that's crazy. I, I sometimes don't even think about all those extra effects that it has, but it's true cuz yeah, every the time Yeah, every time the the Brit goes, it totally fills up the entire town of Jacksonville and it's got to be great for those businesses when that when it works out. That's that's the goal. We want it to be symbiotic. Yeah. Absolutely. We want it to we want it to lift all the boats. It seems that way. Um what about uh food and beverage vendors? How uh-huh. how has that um changed over the years? What's the um kind of uh vision there and how have you gotten the vendors that you've gotten? We have really awesome relationships with our vendors. So first of all, in inside the the kind of permanent structures, we've had our wonderful partner West Coast events in that space for a number of years. I think for a while we had a number of local restaurants in that space, but post pandemic, that's been very tricky. We all know that restaurants have had a hard time getting yes. back on their feet. Um, just just as hard, if not harder, than arts organizations. Restaurants have really, really had a hard time. It's so, so true. It's it's been really tough. But this year, we were super fortunate to work with amazing food truck vendors as well. I love that. Yeah, it was great. Huge fan. Huge fan. Yeah. And you know, our food truck community here is just awesome. And it's gotten so much better in the last five years. It it wasn't this big, you know, five years ago. Well, and when you think about it from a kind of a a restaurateur standpoint, like your startup costs for a food truck are so much more reasonable. Yes. Um, And you're mobile. Yeah. The barrier to entry. That's such a good point because the barrier to entry to, you know, get a location, pay for all the, you know, kitchen equipment, all that stuff. It's huge. Absolutely. And you might not even be in a location that's necessarily good exactly and as a food truck you have that uh, ability to kind of dynamically adapt and go exactly. to where the customers are it's such a it's a great idea for sure yeah from a business yeah and our coo did a really amazing job of working with all of our food truck vendors and with our f- wonderful friends at west coast events so that everybody really um, had a great experience this summer i think yeah and, absolutely you know our food truck vendors really went out on a limb for us because we had not done this in a number of years yeah and everybody really pulled together and especially a big thanks to to christian from peruvian point who i was sort of a cornerstone yeah. of the whole thing and they're excellent oh man they they just were they were just fabulous but all of our vendors were great and i would love to imagine you know brit is such an a plus level concert experience I would really love to imagine that 10 years from now, every other part of the experience is also A+. And I think our food and beverage program is certainly a huge part of that. It you really know, is. You, you want it to be something really special and you want it to be, you know, yeah. the best thing, the best, the best experience that you could possibly have. So, yeah. Um, what would you say are some of the, um, besides the goals that you've already outlined in terms of like your environmental goals and all that, um, what would you say are some uh, 
ideals, some visions for the future yeah. of where the Can break I pull goes. that up actually on Please. my, cause I've got, I've got the starter of my, um, let's see. So we're in the process of, of launching our strategic plan for the next five years. We're going to be working through that with the board and with the community. But the vision that I have, let's call it Vision 2028. In 2028, Brit will be a cultural crown jewel of Southern Oregon, presenting diverse programs that integrate performance, education, and community. And that word integrate is so important because I think it's so crucial that all of these pieces feel like one organism. And I am also really excited about us prioritizing creativity, fun, excellence, and environmental and financial sustainability. I think it's so easy for us to take ourselves seriously in this world. But the thing that Brit does is we make fun. Totally. And so I think just really owning that is so important. Um, when I look at how we're going to realize that, I see four key areas there. Community, which is really all about the people that we serve. Discovery, which is incredible, creative, unique programming. Stewardship, which is again back to making sure that we're taking the best possible care of our natural resources. And, and really advancing that as something the community gets to enjoy. And then infrastructure, because you can't have those things if your staff and your facilities and your finances don't support it. So those are sort of the key, the key cornerstones of the next five years. Um, one thing I'm very excited about is increasing our presence as a creator. Yeah. So for example, creating an artist in residence program or a composer in residence program, something where Brit is part of making something new. I love that. So yeah, explain that a little bit more. Yeah. Please. Yeah. So so I came from an organization. I was in San Francisco. I was um, in charge of the arts and humanities programming at Grace Cathedral, which is the big Episcopal, Episcopal Cathedral at the top of Knob Hill. Okay. And one of my jobs I was tasked with was creating an artist in residence program. And the ability to bring an artist in and say, we want you to make something in this unique space. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. It so was they, so wonderful. They're like a staff artist, basically? basically for a year. Oh, that's such yeah, a cool idea. Yeah, basically for a year. And so they were, they were there to make something that really spoke uniquely to the community. I would love to see Brit taking on more of that role. Yeah. And when Teddy, when Teddy was music director, um, he did a magnificent job of really leveraging the Brit Festival Orchestra as a commissioner of new work. I really want us to be doing even more of that, but more, more than commissioning a composer to make something for the Brit Festival Orchestra, I want to commission a composer that makes something that speaks uniquely to the culture of Southern Oregon. So cool. And bring them here to be in residence in Jacksonville for some period of time so that they're part of the fabric of the community. I love that. And, yeah. and same with a, vi with a visual artist, maybe even, you know, poetry and literary arts, just really like really trying to bring more of a creative force into the Brit brand so that, so that there is something sort of singular and unique and we are, we are speaking with the voice of Southern Oregon. Um, I love that. And creating something new. Yeah, so it's not just the venue. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. I think exactly. that's a really great idea. Um, 
Well, I think that covers everything I had. It for was today. such a pleasure to such, chat with you. Such an honor. Thank you so much for making the time. It was truly my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, this was great. We'll we'll someday have to do it again. I would love that. You know, down the yeah. road, uh, maybe twenty twenty eight. Right. Post, Vision twenty twenty eight. Yeah. When we, did when we, we get, get there. there? Yeah. Did we get there? <laughs> what goals have we hit? Which ones? You know, are we still working on? But yeah. Yeah. I love well, it. and I think also it's so interesting. You set these plans for five years. Yes. And. I mean, five years ago, did we know that the last five years were going to happen? Absolutely not. No and way. So yeah, I think it has it's, to adapt. Yeah, you've got to adapt, and I think it's so interesting to see. I think it's so interesting to see how you map out a plan for five years with the knowledge that something compl- something could completely change. Absolutely. Well, and and it's I. I th- I find solace in the fact that it seems that you are very aware of the constraints and the limitations and the, you know, the, the things that have changed. I think that's a really good quality to have. Thank you. And, uh, and it's, yeah, I think that's, it's, uh, inspiring that you are doing the job that you're doing. Thank you. I love my job. I feel like I won the job lottery. So (laughs) I'm feeling feeling good about it. (laughs) Happy about that. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for this time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Road Creators Podcast. To support this podcast, please rate five stars, leave a review, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about it.